Welcome to Driving Forces, where we focus on the big issues in city, state, and national politics, the ones that matter to you. You were just listening to Let's Talk with John Kane. I'm Jeff Simmons, and thank you for staying with us on this rainy afternoon. Now, while lately we've been focused so heavily on the presidential race and our hometown candidates, and the ongoing controversy surrounding our president, with the latest being the whistleblower's allegations that are seemingly leading to impeachment proceedings, and today's words out of Donald Trump's mouth encouraging China to investigate uh, Joe Biden. I never want to lose sight of the issues that are fueling a lot of these debates and discussions. So whether it's gun control or criminal justice, ethics or the environment, I want driving forces to be a platform for discussion. So in addition to weighing in on the news of the day or the week, it's really helpful to me and I hope helpful to you to dive more deeply into some of these topics. So in the last few days, there have been some astounding, head-shaking developments regarding the Trump administration's views on immigration. And while little, very little surprises me anymore about how our president and his quote-unquote best people view immigrants, the revelations simply throw more fuel onto this fire. So overnight, we learned that the Trump administration wants to collect DNA samples from hundreds of thousands of people booked into federal immigration custody annually and put all these results into a national uh, criminal database, all the strength in their enforcement of immigration laws. Apparently, the Justice Department is developing a new regulation that would empower immigration officers to collect these DNA samples at detention facilities, according to the New York Times. And this comes on the heels of a report describing how far the president has envisioned going to block people from entering our country, including suddenly shutting down the entire 2,000-mile border with Mexico, filling a water uh, with uh, a moat with alligators and snakes and considering electrifying the wall and affixing uh, spikes on top. I'm not making any of this up. I've been, it's astounding. And even suggesting, and, and this is where it's just so head shaking, suggesting shooting migrants in the legs to slow them down if they're trying to enter this country. It all seems unreal. So frankly, given all of this, we're going to be focusing on immigration today. And I hope this discussion is enlightening uh, to you uh, as WBAI listeners, because I know that you turn to our station uh, for for insights, to hear uh, diverse voices. Uh, and, and this is really, frankly, why I've been incredibly grateful to be part of the BAI family for more than a year now. But even before that, having regularly tuned into BAI, um, as you know, and as John Kane, who was just on uh, this last hour, uh, talked a short, about a short while ago, BAI is non-commercial. We're not corporate. We're progressive, and we've been part of the fabric of New York City uh, for more than six decades. And throughout this storied history, we've always been propped up by our listeners, by you, those who are turning in now, those who wake up these days with Juliana Forlano each morning and go to bed listening to the Night Shift or Sugar in My Bowl or the lovely Cat Radio Cafe. If these shows and if BAI have been part of your life, I'm asking for your help today. Just during this hour, I'm just hoping to raise $500. That's it. That's with help from all of you, our listeners. And you're going to help support all the programs that we enjoy bringing to you here on BAI. And that number to call, if you get a, a moment, please, uh, if you can't do it right now, write it down. 516 620 
3602. A good way to do this, if you'd like to be supportive of BAI, is to become what's known as a BAI buddy. That's what I do. I give a recurring donation every month, goes right out onto my credit card. You can give $5, $10, $25. And if you become a BAI buddy during this hour, mention driving forces. It would really be wonderful if you could do that. Again, the number is 516-620-3602. And if you think about how often you listen to BAI, if you listen for several hours a week, 10 or 12 hours, that's hundreds of hours a year that BAI has been able to inform and enlighten you. So just before 6 o'clock, I'm hoping that we can raise $500 during this period. And again, I just want to thank you for tuning in, not just today, but for continuing to support WBAI. Now on to the topic of the day, how I opened up the show. I want to talk about immigration. I mentioned some of these astounding stories that have developed this week. And today I've got three wonderful guests, one of whom is joining me in studio, Mazin Sidhamed, co-founder and senior reporter at Documented, which is a website I encourage you all to follow. Wait till after the show, though. Uh, but I encourage you all to follow. I'm going to let him talk about his, his bio because I could give a long introduction because he's got... A, a wonderful background, but I'd rather you hear it in his words. So welcome to WBAI's Thank Driving so Forces. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. Talk a little about your background and, and, and what then brought you to New York City and then to create Documented. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really a pleasure to be with you today. So I, I really got my start in reporting in the Middle East. I was a reporter in Beirut, Lebanon, and I was covering the fallout from the Syrian civil war. There were about a million Syrian refugees living in Lebanon at that time. There's even more now. Um, and the country has a population of 4 million. So it increased by about 25%. And that had put a strain on a lot of different resources and, and driven up a lot of tensions from the country that had historically had a civil war um, because of a previous refugee crisis. So I was reporting on a lot of issues surrounding that um, and the, the fallout from the Syrian civil war in other different ways. And I eventually came to New York, um, where I worked at Politico New York and covered local news and um, housing issues. But I maintained an interest in covering issues around migration and immigration. I ended up working at The Guardian, um, and there I focused on Muslim Americans in the U.S. Um, and a lot of the ways in which their immigration status is weaponized in a national security setting. So they're um, put on no-fly lists or made it more difficult for them to achieve different residency statuses because of national security, quote-unquote national security concerns. So I continued my coverage of immigration and the travel ban when, when Trump came into office. But um, around 2017, me and a uh, former classmate of mine, his Max Siegelbaum, were discussing doing a project that focused on interior enforcement. So we realized that um, when Trump came into office, there was a lot of focus on the border and a lot of focus on what was happening on, in D.C. But there wasn't a lot of look at what was happening in the interior U.S. ICE enforcement was going up dramatically pretty quickly from when Trump came into office. And a lot of the policies that were happening in DC were being felt in communities um, first. So that's when we got this idea to, first of all, do an editorial project. But then we thought, what if we turn this into a newsroom, providing sustained coverage of immigration issues locally, starting off in New York? Um, and we took this idea and pitched it to a company called Civil, which at the time was providing seed funding to um, you know, different projects to, to get newsrooms off the ground and, and provide capacity building support 
and they loved it and they gave us the resources that we needed to get off the ground and we launched in june 2018 actually right at the peak of the family separation crisis and it's kind of been non-stop ever since then and how large is the newsroom is it it's not just the two of you now it is actually yeah it's just oh, the two really? of us we work with contractors in different you uh, do so much that's <laughs> why there's a lot of good coverage yeah we really appreciate that it's um we're blessed to be able to have a lot of other people working with us um in like contractor capacities and freelancers but um yeah and we've been really lucky actually to have some great national partners so since we've launched we've done editorial partnerships with the daily beast the guardian the new york times wnyc um people are really interested in this issue right now and i think they appreciate the level of expertise that we're bringing to it as well and you you have a, a, a clear focus on what is going on here in new york city and I've watched uh, watched online. I've been able to see your coverage uh, where you have uh, focused a lot on the people who've been caught up in the system. Uh, I'm trying to think of the uh, gentleman who was delivering the pizza. Mm. Um, Echeverria? Uh, Pablo Villavicencio. Villavicencio. I'm trying to, I worked with a woman, Echeverria. That's why mm. I'm saying that. Mm. Um, so talk a little about like how you're coming. I mean, you had a lot of good I'm saying grassroots, you know, original reporting. Where are you getting a lot of the tips from? Where is this coming from? Yeah, so I think we started off thinking that the main audience that we're going to have for this site is the local immigrant advocacy community. We're pretty um, lucky in New York, I guess, that there is a very robust immigrant advocacy community in in the city. Make the Road being one of them, we'll be hearing from later. Um, And a lot of other immigration attorneys who work in Immigration Corps and who deal with these issues. So they gravitate to our, towards us instantly. We publish a newsletter three times a week. I'd recommend it if you want to stay up to date with what's happening with immigration issues in New York. Um, it documented NY.com is where, where you can find it. But through that, we were able to build an audience of people that um, are really passionate about this issue. And they came to us with with stories and, and you know, we um, file FOIL requests regularly and then we can take them to them and help, help um, build those out so we've had a number of stories my co-founder Max just published a piece recently about a um, a young man who was held in detention despite being under the age of 18 ICE officers didn't believe that he was um, 17 when when he was put in their custody so they put him in an adult detention center despite the fact that um, he had a birth certificate that proved that he wasn't and they just said it was falsified so he ended up having to spend six months in immigration detention with adults, despite being a, a teenager who, under federal law, should have been um, in a foster in the foster care system. And that's a story that came from uh, a discussion with an attorney. So that's how a lot of a lot of these stories come about. And uh, one of your recent stories uh, had been on the ICE director's defense of courthouse arrests. Can you talk a little about that? Absolutely, yeah. So. The ICE director actually sat down with um, New York One and WNYC for an interview, a very rare interview. Mm-hmm. Um, since the Trump administration has uh, come into office, ICE has been in the news regularly. And their press office isn't shy. You know, they'll, they'll issue a statement. But we haven't heard from the director of the New York field office um, really in, in such a kind of concerted manner um, over the past two and a half years. But last week, a group of advocacy organizations filed a lawsuit um, to make um, courthouse arrests effectively illegal. 
and to get an injunction passed that would prevent them from happening. Two different, the New York State AG and the Brooklyn Defenders, the Brooklyn DA's office, and um, a group and legal aid and other advocacy organizations filed two separate lawsuits. Um, and I guess this angered the the New York field office director enough that he decided that he wanted to come out um, and provide a pretty full-throated defense of this policy of arresting people outside of courthouses. So the argument that they've been making for some time is that they have to arrest people outside of courthouses because of New York City's quote-unquote sanctuary policies. Mm -hmm. This means that NYPD doesn't honor what we call detainer requests, which require, um, which is when ICE asks a local police department to hold somebody in custody for up to 48 hours after their release so that they can um, put them into removal proceedings or potentially transfer them into custody of ICE. And as a sanctuary city, the New, New York City doesn't honor those requests. So they argue, ICE argues, that because they don't honor those requests, they have no other choice but to arrest people outside of courthouses. I think a lot of advocates would say that there are uh, a lot of other ways in which ICE could go about that work. And also, these arresting people outside of courthouses disrupts the court process dramatically. Mm -hmm. So with that, we're going to go to our first guest. And you can feel free to ask questions as well. Um, now on the line, we've got uh, Yuritza Mendez, lead immigration organizer at Make the Road New York. Uh, she previously served as its citywide outreach coordinator in charge of providing outreach support and training to all of Action NYC's outreach partner community-based organizations, the CBOs. And in her current role, she continues to shape Action NYC and helps to lead the organization's immigration work. Yuritza, welcome to WBAI. Thank you for having me. So first, talk a little about, for any listeners that are not, I mean, I've been familiar with Make the Road New York for quite some time, but for anyone who is not familiar with it, please talk a little about what the organization does. Great, for sure. Um, Make the Road New York is a community-based organization that builds the power of immigrant and working class communities to achieve justice and dignity. Um, we currently have five community centers throughout um, New York State um, to ensure that we are providing the services and the best care that we can to um, the population that we serve. And how did you first get involved? Uh, you know, I read your bio, so I know, but I want the listeners to know because it's not just in your current role or in the previous one, but you go back a little further. Yes, I do. Um, yeah, so I started to make the road at the age of 14 through an, um, an internship that I did here. Um, and at that time, um, the organization immigration team was working on in-state and out-of-state tuition. And as someone who um, is an immigrant myself and whose um, family was also um, impacted by the um, immigration system, I got really interested in the work that Make the Road does and was doing at the time and decided to go to school um, to double major in sociology and criminology with the idea of eventually coming back to the community and serving, and I'm super excited to be doing um, this kind of work on a day-to-day -day basis. Great. This is Mazin here, so just, just chiming in. Uh, I was interested that uh, Make the Road was one of the plaintiffs on the courthouse arrest lawsuit last week that Legal Aid filed, and you said that courthouse arrests were disrupting the work of Make the Road. Uh, could you speak a little bit about that? What, what kind of impact are courthouse arrests having on, on Make the Road's advocacy work and providing help to, to immigrants in the city? 
Um, sure thing. Um, and nice talking to you again. Um, yeah, so Make the Road, a lot of our membership um, um, had approached our offices because they were afraid of um, going to the court um, for, you know, whatever reason that they needed to attend court. Um, and for some of us, like our organization or I guess our organizers um, tend to go to court with membership so that they can kind of like feel some type of support um, from the community that they are a part of. Um, and in terms of that area, that has been kind of like a disruption where organizers and members themselves don't feel safe to do so just because of the backlash in the constant arrest that um, has been happening, um, not only kind of like in Queens and Brooklyn, but also we are hearing a lot of those happening in more kind of like isolated areas like Staten Island. Um, and so we're, you know, that has created um, a not so cohesion, I guess, like system for our community members as we are accustomed to. And what are, uh, it's Jeff, what are some of the arguments you're using in this legal action to in, in hopes of prevailing? For the ISAT, of course, or the protector courts, the argument um, that we are doing or um, using in conjunction with legal aids lots to is that um, the courthouse's arrest violates the immigrants' constitutional rights to assess the legal system as it is, um, and that you know again because of I get we we want also want to make sure that we're elevating the humanity of this and how it has an impact on people's lives and people also all, at all times being um, fearful of um, doing going about their daily needs um, just because of the repercussions that they think will be happening. So I just, you know, opened the show a short while ago and talking about some of the most recent uh, astounding developments that we've read about and heard about this week with what the uh, uh, the Trump administration wants to do. I mean, we're in this climate right now where it feels as if the administration is doing whatever it can uh, to cut down on immigration and, and cripple rights. You know, how do you, you know, how does this impact make the road New York and all of the work that you do? Because it feels like there's so many different battles that you have to fight right now. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, I think like, um, and like, have, have you, as you're mentioning, not only do we have to kind of like think about what else we can 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 do to protect um, folks at the city and, the, and at the state level when it comes to legislations, but also kind of like fighting back at the current administration. Um, in, in the last couple of, of years, we have actually started using a lot of like legal strategies, not only on the advocacy side and meaning like, you know, lobbying and trying to pass legislations, but actually like started suing um, some of the practices that are impacting um, the immigrant community. So, for instance, like we just talked about one, the protector courts legislation um, that has been introduced at the state um, level for uh, since last year. Um, and now we are actually needed to take another strategy or another route and also involving um, um, legal experts on this issue to also help elevate it. The other kind of like two quick ones at the federal level, just because of the constant attack, has to do with like the public charge um, change or ruling um, that not also not only are we advocating against it, but we also had to take um, a legal strategy to combat it. And then we also, um, not only for the DACA, uh, for instance, um, lawsuit that had been filed for a number of years, but now also kind of like elevated because of the constant attack and the possibility of it, of it being like it continually impacting in a serious way or harming the lives of so many youth throughout the state of the country. I'm sorry. 
So not only is kind of like in a sense doubling the work on grassroots organizations like ours, that not only do we have to look out and start doing advocacy work, but also starting thinking about kind of like outside the box as to what other strategies we need to take into account to make sure that we're continue combat combating and like being vocal about things that are just not right. On public charge, obviously, there's multiple lawsuits happening right now that could prevent it from going into place on October 15th. But I'm interested to know how you're preparing your members um, for the potential of it going into effect without fear-mongering them into not using services. You know, there's a lot of real consequences that could happen because Mm -hmm. the law is so broad and opaque and, you know, it could be used against them in lots of really horrible ways. But you also want to make sure that people are still using the services mm-hmm. that they're eligible for. How are you striking That's that right. balance? So what we did um, shortly after we um, found out the new definition um, uh, that they came up with, um, started doing educational workshops all throughout our five offices um, where we kind of like open it up not only for our membership but also community members to come in and ask questions. Um, our legal and health t- team has also created a plan to do one-on-one screenings with people that ha- wanted it to know more about their case in a specific, because, of course, we couldn't answer their question um, in a large or in a community setting, right, because every case is very individual and very different. So we have also created a strategy or a plan around how- opening up those spaces where community members could come in Um, free of charge and, of course, everything being confidential to ask specific questions about their cases so that they can later assess whether or not they would like to continue um, obtaining services if they have been getting for a number of years or not. But I think a lot of it had to do with a lot of the members that I saw participating in those kind of spaces. They were just wondering how it will affect them, right? And I think that providing information um, and repeating it over and over, um, but also doing it in a way and in the language that they feel comfortable in um, and being in a room full of people that they can relate to um, has been able to help us a lot as an organization, especially with this issue, just because there's a, just a lot of kind of like taboo and questions around it, um, but also making sure that people will later want it to have questions about their cases and also providing the space to do that as well. And you mentioned you also mentioned DACA, um, and I had noted that the uh, uh, the argue, legal, I guess the oral arguments are uh, are coming up uh, in mid November mm-hmm. on November twelfth. Um, you know, between now and then, uh, is there anything else that happens? Or will there be any rallies? Any uh, any other developments that you're expecting, or are we really just waiting for those arguments? So we um, there actually this week there was a launch of the there's a, a kind of like a national campaign launch um, and it's called Home is Here um, and folks if they want to find out more on how they can help they can go to home homeishere.us um, and that one will with that website what you can see is to figure it out or get a guide um, as to how allies can help out. Um, and and also for those that are DACA recipients, how they can be a part of the movement. Um, in terms of action, to answer your question more specifically, there will be a launch march because there will be a group of folks or New York City um, DACA recipients that will be marching from um, New York City to Washington, D.C., um, on October, starting on October 26th. So there will be a huge event happening uh, in uh, Liberty Park, 
um, on the 26th, where we will be talking about this issue and why it's so important, especially now, and why going to the sea is really crucial to be, a, uh, to be in um, on November 12th. Um, so the, 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 the march will start uh, from Liberty Park, and folks will be walking all the way until November 10th. Um, so that they can be ready for the November 12th um, oral arguments of the Supreme Court on the DACA case. So that is one big event that folks can plug in. Um, if they would like to march, they can, you know, more than welcome to do so. But if there's also if, and, and other ways for people to, to plug in on that campaign. Um, and once again, the website is homeishere.us. And, um you know, I should give a plug for next week's show because the, a person who I have uh, in studio, one of the two guests next week, uh, is the first uh, uh, DACA uh, student uh, who uh, joined the New York State Assembly, Catalina Cruz. She's going to be joining me in here next week, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, you know, I've been familiar with Make the Road New York for some time. You had a number of victories, and, you know, and most recently one of them had been um, the uh, passage of legislation so that uh, immigrants could receive uh, driver's licenses here in New York State. Um, you know, but is that the only one? Where else have you been able to claim victory in supporting immigrants in, in the last year or two? And I'm, I mean, my assumption is also with the change in the state legislature that that has also paved the way uh, for a number of these reforms. That's right. At the state level, um, yes, the, the driver's license legislation was huge. Was a huge win for the immigrants uh, for immigrants' rights. Um, but also at the state level, um, it was the New York State Dream Act, which provides um, resources for undocumented students to pursue their education, um, regardless of you know their immigration status, even though that before they were not able to do so. And yes, it also it also has to do a lot with the. A structure or the flip in the um, at the at the state legislature where we were able to pass so many progressive legislations as the New York State Dream Act and the driver's license, but um, it also had a lot to do with the advocacy that um, a lot of groups had had been doing for a number of years for a number of years to make it happen. Great. So, um, how can people learn more about you and make the road and potentially get involved in all of this? Um, folks can go to our website at maketheroadny.org. Um, they can also find us in social media at Make the Road NY or in Facebook at Make the Road New York. Um, or folks can also text, text the, the word road at 52886 for updates. Yuritza Mendez, lead immigration organizer at Make the Road New York. Thank you so much for joining us on WBAI today. Thank you for having me. So uh, as you can tell, we're focused on immigration today. And as we get ready for our next guest, I just want to thank our listeners again for tuning in this afternoon. Um, maybe you've been listening to WBAI for quite some time, but you aren't exactly a BAI buddy or a member yet. You've heard us asking for support, but you thought we were talking to someone else. But I'm talking to you, the people who are tuned in right now. And it, um, whatever the reason you might have given before, like now is not the right time or there might have been excuses. You're like, I'll do it another time. Well, just take a moment right now. Take a moment and consider how much you have enjoyed listening to WBAI through the years and what's a more comfortable place to start than with a BAI membership for, say, 5 or $10 or $20 a month uh, as a BAI buddy in the name of Driving Forces. 
All you've got to do is call 516-620-3602. That's our pledge line. Or you can even do this online, and that's give to, that's the number two, WBAI.org. And there's even one other way. On your smartphone, you could text WBAI to 41444. This hour... With a half hour left to go, I'm just trying to raise $500. That's it. And if you become a BAI buddy, it's a $10 a month even with a recurring donation. That's going to get me a f- more than a fifth of the way there. 516-620-3602. In the second half hour, we're going to have one other guest, but then we're going to open up the phone lines uh, in about another, uh, say, 10, 12 minutes. And the number that you can call then would be 212-209-2877. We want to know what you think about the issues that we're talking talking uh, about today. Uh, you've been listening to Driving Forces with me, Jeff Simmons, on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, I am joined in studio by Mazen Siramed of Documented, and we're going to continue talking about these immigration issues with our next guest, who we have on the line. Great. We're now joined by Anand Balakrishnan, staff attorney with the ACLU's Immigrant Rights Project. And this project is dedicated to expanding and enforcing the civil liberties and civil rights of immigrants and to combating public and private discrimination against them. Anand, welcome to Driving Forces. Thanks for having me. So uh, I want to talk a little about uh, the case that you have been involved in, that you had sought a preliminary injunction uh, joined by the American Immigration Council and Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett, and last week you had a victory. Can you talk a little about this case? Because I didn't want to give too much specifics. I'll let you do it in your own words. Of course, and thanks so much. <clears throat> yeah, so the background of the case is the following. <clears throat> in, on July 23rd of this year, the administration announced that it was going to expand what is already a controversial program known as expedited removal to apply to a large swath of the non-citizens who live within the United States border. Um, Expedited removal is really sort of an exception to the norm. The norm in immigration law, as is the norm across all areas of American law, is that when someone is going to be deprived of any type of liberty or property interest, and in this case it would mean to be deported from the United States, they're supposed to get, you know, what basic due process requires, which is a fair hearing before a neutral adjudicator. Time to prepare, time to contest the allegations that are brought before you, and an ability to rely on counsel. You know, these are bedrock constitutional rights that are held by everyone within the United States borders, citizens or non-citizens. From 1996 to, you know, July 23rd of this year, Um, the government had used expedited removal only in very limited settings. So it had used it, you know, they had applied it to people who were applying for entry into the United States at the border, and it had also applied it to people who had only very recently entered the United States and were found within 100 miles of the U.S. border and who had only been in the United States for less than 14 days. What the administration did in July of this year was seek to expand the use of expedited removal to everyone in the United States who could not affirmatively show two years of continuous presence. Um, And that, I think, even to describe it, I think, is sort of a, you know, to really, to really note the problems with it, because at bottom, 
It would require people to affirmatively demonstrate that they have not left the United States for a two-year continuous presence before any time an immigration officer asks them about it. Um, because one of the things that expedited removal does is that it puts the entire decision to deport someone from the United States in the hands of a single immigration officer, um, which means that there is no time to collect documents. There is no time to investigate the allegations that are brought against you. There is no formalized mechanism for the government to assess whether someone has claims for relief from removal. And the entirety of the process can occur within hours. And, you know, the, the expansion of expedited removal essentially would have placed a huge amount of authority in the government's hands unilaterally to deport anyone on the spot. And, you know, the, the entire sort of history of expedited removal from 1996 up to the present has shown that in the lack of any sort of basic due process rights or checks on immigration officers' authority, um, mistakes are made. And many of these mistakes can have grievous effects. So particularly, for example, um, asylum seekers. Um, there's been, a, you know, report after report has shown that the expedited removal system does not provide a fair mechanism to assess people's claim for fear of removal to a country where they may face persecution. And, you know, these are not just reports. These are reports by a number of major NGOs and nonprofits in the United States, but also they're reports that Congress itself had authorized because it was concerned about the effect that expedited removal was having on asylum seekers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so that's one of the reasons why we sued very soon after the government announced that it was going to expand what was already a controversial program. Right, and uh, I th sorry, this is Mazen Sirahma from Documented just chiming in. It's, uh, it's great to speak with you. The I think the judge in the case mentioned a lot of the, the things you're mentioning in their ruling about um, the problems with expedited removal. I was interested to hear your thoughts on um, what this would, what this case would look like if it went before the Supreme Court. You know, federal judges have been um, inclined to support immigrant advocates in their um, in legal cases, you know, against Trump's policies. But the Supreme Court has been less so. Uh, are you concerned about that? And do you see this case going in the Supreme Court? You know, I think it's too early to tell as to what's going to happen with the case. You know, the the court issued its decision last Friday. The government has not yet sort of announced an intention to appeal it, though, you know, they may. Um, I think that, you know, I think that we're quite confident of our claims right now, because what the, the way the judge decided this case was that, you know, at this stage of the proceedings, what she's decided is that um, even if we put aside sort of the ultimate merits of the expedited removal program, the government didn't even comply with basic procedural requirements that, you know, basically have existed for over 50 years that apply to every sort of administrative action that impacts this many people. So, you know, these are sort of, these are sort of very, very sort of well-established, you know, rules that apply to every part of the American bureaucracy, including the immigration section. And um, I think for that reason, we're confident on appeal if it should come. What's the window for the government to appeal? Oh, they still have time. I, I assume that they will be telling us, you know, relatively soon whether they decide to appeal or not. And, I mean, you mentioned, you talked a little about Judge uh, um, Judge Brown Jackson's uh, uh, ruling. 
um, what were uh, some of the violations that uh, that you had identified in your uh, in your filing that she seemed to agree with? Or did she not rule on the specific violations, but she focused on the other issues you raised? You know, so I'll take sort of like one of the core violations that she found, which was a violation of the basic requirement that whenever the government announces or attempts to implement a policy of this range, they have to go through sort of what's known as basic notice and comment requirements, which is that they give the public notice of their intent to undergo sort of a planned action. And they invite public comment. And the reason that that, you know, that procedure applies is because, you know, we want the government to be making decisions in an informed manner. And she found it, you know, she found that the government's failure to do so violated that core procedural protection and also commented further on the fact that really in this case, there was absolutely no reason not to go through with it, given the fact that the administration first sort of announced its intention to expand expedited removal over two years ago, and yet did not do so for an extremely long time. And when they did so, they acted very quickly and unilaterally. And, you know, in the background were, of course, the concerns of the fact that this change has major implications for the due process rights of hundreds of thousands of people, and also those people's family members. And given the stakes that were Given the gravity of the stakes, she understood that it was even more important for this decision, if it were going to be made, to be made, you know, with input from all of the American public. I just think of so many of the announcements we hear out of uh, uh, Donald Trump's mouth or via his Twitter feed or from the administration that seemed to just happen suddenly that they're moving ahead with it. I think of even the uh, the transgender ban and the uh, removal of the uh, of uh, what the ability of transgender individuals to serve in the military and how quickly they move on things. What message do you think was being delivered this summer when they decided we're going to fast track the deportation process? What message does that send to many people who have now called America home? I mean, I think it's the same message that they've been attempting to send consistently over the past two years, which is that, you know, which is one, which is that, you know, they are not going to permit any sort of, you know, immigration policy that is fair or humane and that they will break longstanding norms of process that are dictated by both the Constitution as well as by established historical practice to attack immigrants. Anand Balakrishnan, staff attorney with the ACLU's Immigrant Rights Project. How can people learn more about you and more specifically about this suit if they want to uh, digest this more? Well, I think, you know, we do have a web page set up at the ACLU webpage about expedited removal um, that will that sort of explains the basics of the program and also tracks the course of this litigation. Anand, thank you so much for joining us here on Driving Forces today. Great. Thanks so much. So now is Catherine's favorite time of the show. The phone lines are now open. 212-209-28... Is that a call already? Oh, okay. 212. I didn't even give it out the full number. 212-209-2877. Let us know what you think about what you've heard today. What immigration stories do you also feel are not being covered? Call us with your thoughts. 212 209 2877. 
I'm joined in studio by Mazen Sidamed of Documented, who's been tracking also, reporting uh, uh, significantly on uh, what ICE has done here in New York City. If you also have a story that you also want to tip him off to, Please. of course, everyone's going to know you're doing that, uh, that you're the tipster with him. But uh, he's here to take it down. I've got a notebook for you, uh, Mazen. Uh, 212-209-2877. And as we wait for some of those calls, I just want to go back to some of uh, what you've been covering. Uh, we talked a little about public charge before, actually. And I'm curious, you know, what is on the horizon? Because, I mean, there's the you mentioned the October 15th date. Is this expected to go into place then? Or, you know, how does this roll out? What happens? So we've seen with a lot of cases like um, the one we were just speaking about now uh, that federal courts are generally inclined to agree with... Um, uh, immigrant advocacy groups and, and attorneys about the legality of a lot of these in different immigration policies. So a lot of the arguments that are being presented about public charge mirror some of the arguments we were just talking about now that procedurally it wasn't thought out. There was a comment period, as um, Nam was just talking about, there was a comment period, but reporters at ProPublica found egregious mistakes in the Federal Register rule that was published that actually led to corrections from the government. Um, things about um, families uh, who had U.S. citizen partners would be more affected by the rule than families who had non-U.S. citizen partners. So there, there is a good chance that the one of the three cases right now would lead to some sort of an injunction that will prevent it going into place on October 15th. But, excuse me, we've already seen the impacts of it. We, you know, we published a story last year that showed that WIC enrollments in, in New York City were declining every time a story was leaked about the potential of public charge. So just the, the idea that it might happen is scaring people away from getting SNAP or applying for other benefits that they would uh, be eligible for. So even if it doesn't go into effect, it's already having a ripple effect around immigrant communities. There's also another story that surfaced in the last few days. I was watching this on New York One last night. Uh, I believe uh, Councilman Carlos Menchaca was talking about it, which is the concern about the municipal ID cards mm -hmm. that many of us have gotten. That they There's the consideration to put in, I guess, a chip, sort of like when we're putting in our credit card, but the concern being that this uh, could what help to what track people more or provide information to ICE? Yeah, that 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 information could be subpoenaed by a federal agency and that could then eventually um, lead to getting into the hands of immigration enforcement and endanger undocumented people. And I think that a lot of those concerns were raised early on when the NYCID was created that, you know, the databases could be effectively like a tip sheet for um for immigration enforcement agents if they were able to get their hands on it. And then adding this banking component, a lot of people, f I guess the the idea, the benefits of it is kind of help the unbanked um, get online. But um, I think some advocates will argue that it's a solution looking for a problem. It's mm -hmm. not something mm -hmm. that a lot of um, people that work with immigrant advocacy groups are really asking for or push for. But... Um, some people are saying that it's kind of been pushed more by lobbyists and people who have interests um, in like who in getting a contract to provide those services. So a few months ago, I was doing a show here on uh, 
uh, over the weekend when it was expected that, you know, remember the president had talked about how there were going to be ice raids across the country at that point. And I think they didn't, there were two, what, two or three potential incidents here in New York City, but they didn't really materialize then. But from the people you talk with in many communities, is, I mean, is the fear getting worse? Because, you know, when the president kind of warned everyone that this is going to be happening, there was a lot of fear across the country and here in New York City. And I remember doing interviews with people that weekend uh, who talked about how people were kind of cowering in their homes. They weren't answering the door. What What is the climate like now when you hear, I mean, we're talking about lawsuits and what the government is going to be doing. But, you know, the people who have moved here, who live here, what are they going through? You know, I think that fear has been consistent since February 2017. I think that, you know, the travel ban um, was a kind of statement of intent, you know, when the Trump administration put out a travel ban saying that people from seven different Muslim majority countries wouldn't be allowed to come here. And I think that kind of level of um, hysteria that that caused um, and the, the fact that there was a genuine uptick in ICE enforcement in the city, you know, in Obama at the height of... Uh, Obama's um, the Obama administration's like immigration enforcement it was you know exceptional exceptionally high numbers but if we compare the number of people that are being arrested by ICE now to Obama's last year it's doubled you know the more people are getting arrested people who previously weren't prioritized for arrest were getting arrested and people that I've spoken to you know for from a lot of different backgrounds from who live all over the city um, are in fear, you know, and they're, they're genuinely worried about it. And I think that one of the success stories of that um, announcement that there was going to be 2,000 arrests around the countries was of, excuse me, the um, success of Know Your Rights campaigns. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the 